0: Welcome back to The Real News Network. It's Reality Asserts Itself, and I'm Paul Jay. We're continuing our interview now with Johan Hari, who's published a book he's been working on for the past three years called Chasing the Scream, the First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Johan has been a columnist for The Independent in London for nine years, and he's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, and lots more. Thanks for joining us again. Great to be with you, Paul. So one of the things you try to explore in your book, which I thought was quite interesting, is the relationship of addiction to trauma. I mean, a lot of addiction seems to be almost a form of self-medication, people that are growing up in circumstances
1: that are so unlivable. Uh, Talk a bit about that. This blew my mind. I didn't know any of this before I set off. And as we talked about before, I have a very personal investment in this, you know. We had very bad drug addiction in my family. And if you had said to me four years ago, say, what causes heroin addiction, I would have looked at you like you were a little bit stupid. And I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction. And for 100 years now, we've been told a story about addiction that is so deeply ingrained in our culture that it seems like our common sense. It almost seems stupid to to say it, right? So we think if you, me, and the next 20 people who walk past this studio used heroin for 20 days, because there are chemical hooks in the heroin, at the end of that 20 days, our body would physically need heroin, and that's what addiction is, right? That's what we believe. First thing that pricked my awareness that that may not be true is when it's explained to me by a doctor, if you want me to step out of here today and God forbid we get hit by a car, and we break our hip, we'll be taken to hospital, we'll be given a lot of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, much better heroin than the heroin you'd score on the streets in Baltimore because it's 100% pure as opposed to the street heroin which is going to be like 5-10% to pure. You'll be given that diamorphine for a really long time, right? It's happening in every hospital, anyone watching this anywhere in the developed world, that's happening in a hospital near you. People are being given a lot of heroin. You will have noticed your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip operation, right?
0: I must say, though, when my mother was in the hospital and, and, and late in life and
1: they were so worried about addiction, they sometimes did leave her in pain. They were so afraid it's of how much yeah. they gave her. It's horrendous. It's based on a complete misconception about addiction. There are massive studies of this that show that medical use virtually never causes addiction. The reason I discovered is I learned from talking to an incredible man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor in Vancouver, who explained to me the old theory of addiction, the one that we all implicitly believe. It uh, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. If your viewers are feeling a little bit sadistic, they can try them themselves. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and one is water laced with heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will very rapidly become addicted to the drugged water and will almost always kill itself, right? There you go, addiction. In the 70s, Bruce comes along and says, well, hang on a minute, we're putting the rat in an empty cage, it's got nothing to do except use the drugs, let's do this differently. So Bruce built Rat Park. Rat Park is like heaven for rats, right? It's got loads of cheese, it's got loads of friends, it can have loads of sex, it's got loads of coloured balls and tunnels and everything rats like, right? And they've got both the water bottles, they've got the drugged water and they've got the normal water and they try both of course because they don't know what's in them. But here's the fascinating thing, in Rat Park they don't like the drugged water, they hardly ever use it, none of them ever overdose, none of them ever use in a compulsive way that looks like addiction. There's a very interesting human example of this I can give in a minute. There's loads of human examples. I actually think in Baltimore we're surrounded by them. But the, um, what Bruce says is this shows that both the right-wing theory of addiction and the left-wing theories of addiction are wrong. The right-wing theory of addiction is you know, it's a moral failing, you indulge yourself, you're a hedonist. The left-wing theory is you, know, you get taken over, your brain gets hijacked, all of that. What Bruce says, it's not your morality, it's not your brain, it's your cage. Addiction is an adaptation to your environment. Why do people living shitty, disconnected lives, where they've got no meaning and they're cut off from all the people around them, become much more likely to become addicts than happy, connected people? We could be drunk now, right? Set aside the drug laws. You and me, these, these mugs, they could be full of vodka, right? They're not. Why are we sober now? Because we've got something we want to do. We've got meaning in our lives. No, we choose not to. We've got, yeah, we've got, well, it's not about choice. We've got purpose in our lives and we've got things we want to be present for. No, but, but I'm
0: saying the choice comes from that. We don't yeah. feel some desperate need to deal,
1: self-medicate. Exactly, exactly. And a really good human example happened to be happening at exactly the same time as the rat Park experiment by coincidence. It's called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of American troops were using heroin regularly, right? And if you look at the news stories from the time there's a massive panic. They're thinking, because they believe the old theory of addiction, they're thinking, my God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends. What happens? They come home and the overwhelming majority just stop. They go to rehab, they don't go to withdrawal, they stop. Because if you're taken out of a hellish pestilential jungle where you don't want to be, you could be killed at any moment, you're not with the people you know and you go back to your nice life in Wichita, Kansas, with your friends, your family, and your job, it's the equivalent of being taken out of the first cage and put into the second cage. Now this is massive implications, partly for the drug war, because the drug war, but I think wider, the drug war is based on the idea that uh, the chemicals cause the problem, and we need to physically eradicate these chemicals from the world. If in fact, most of the people, the vast majority of people who use those chemicals don't become addicted, if in fact you need a whole other component going on, well then it makes much more sense to. Deal with that problem, and there's a country that does this. I think it has much wider implications. You know, you look at history, there are moments when addiction spikes, right? The Native Americans suffer a genocide, the traumatized survivors overwhelmingly become addicts, right? In England in the 18th century, people are driven off the land, out of the countryside, into these disgusting urban slums. The gin craze happens, right? And that's regarded as the crack of its day. Gin is regarded as this thing that hijacks you and takes you over. Why does crack happen in the 80s? The destruction of industrial America, the destruction of the factories, the destruction of organized labor. Why do you get the meth epidemic in the 80s and the 90s? You have the destruction of rural America under Reaganism. Why are we seeing an oxy crisis now? What's happened since 2008 that might be causing a lot of distress, panic, and pain? You know? So there is an underlying continuity where you see a spike in distress. And we've created a society where a significant number of our fellow citizens, including some people I love, can't bear to be present in their lives. If we want them to be present in their lives, we have to make reality a lot better, and we have to think about the fact that a hyper-individualistic, hyper-capitalist, consumer-based society leaves a lot of people feeling that life just ain't worth being present in. I wish we had more
0: time. So we're going to, because there's, uh, I'm going to plug the book. I don't always sh- flog the book, but <laughs> Thank here, I'm you. flogging the book. You, it's, it's really worth going into. Uh, we have a few more minutes. Sure. So w- where are some places they are trying to re- make reality a little
1: more livable, particularly with more rational drug laws, and is it working? It blew my mind, to this If I'm completely honest, I put off going to the places where the solutions are being tried because I thought if it doesn't work there, if I go there and it doesn't work, this will be the most depressing book ever written. But actually, I was totally blown away by what I discovered. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe, 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. They had a worse drug problem than Baltimore. And every year, they tried the American way. They cracked down harder, they punished people more, and every year the problem got worse. And one day, the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition got together and they said, look, let's just set up a panel of scientists and doctors to figure out what the hell we will actually deal with this and let's agree in advance that we'll abide by whatever they recommend. So they just took it out of politics because the crisis was so bad. The panel comes back and says, decriminalize everything from cannabis to crack, but, and this is the crucial second point, take all the money we currently spend on arresting drug users, trying drug users, imprisoning drug users, take all that money and spend it on incredibly good drug treatment. And that's not what we generally think of when we think of drug treatment in America and Britain. Part of it is residential rehab and psychological support, which is great, and they do do that. But actually the biggest part of it was learning the lesson of Rat Park. It was reconnecting addicts with the society. So, and the biggest part of it was just subsidized jobs. Say you were a smack addict, right? Your life fell apart, you used to be a mechanic. Once you're ready, they'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we will pay half of his wages. So just the, uh, you know, the goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning, had purpose and meaning in life. And the results have been. The results are in. It's been f- nearly 15 years, 14 years now. Injecting drug use is down by 50%, 5-0%. Every study shows addiction is massively down. Overdose is massively down. HIV transmission is massively down among addicts. Um, and one of the ways you know it's been such a success, one of the most moving interviews I did was with a guy called Juan Figueira, who was the leader of the opposition to the decriminalization. He was the top, top drug cop in Portugal. And he said a lot of the things that a lot of your viewers will be perfectly reasonably thinking. Surely if you decriminalize all drugs, there'll be a massive increase in use, there'll be chaos. And what he said to me, I'm paraphrasing, the exact words are in the book, but he said, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he actually felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years before the decriminalization, arresting and harassing drug users and that actually there's a much better way and he hoped the whole world followed his example. I don't want to get too Billy Graham on you, but I did kind of feel like I've seen the future and it works. You know, This is something that could be done here in the United States. Now, the Portuguese model is not perfect. They've decriminalized use, but they haven't, uh, there's no legal access to the drugs. So what you've dealt with is uh, the crudest way to put it is they don't have Orange is the New Black anymore, but they still have Breaking Bad. You still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get your drugs, Oh, so there's right? no heroin maintenance program, this sort of They've thing. They've got methadone maintenance. I went to countries where they had, in fact, legalized as opposed to decriminalized. Very interesting example is Switzerland. I'm a Swiss citizen as well as a British citizen through my father. And uh, Switzerland is a really right-wing country. My Swiss relatives make, you know, they make Mike Huckabee look like Bernie Sanders, right? These are really right-wing people. And they voted in referenda by huge majorities to legalize heroin. It's fascinating. And they did it for a very simple reason. The um, the way it works is, if you're a heroin addict in Switzerland, go to a doctor, and if they believe you're a heroin addict, and they almost always do, they'll send you to a clinic. You go every morning and you can inject your heroin there, they'll give you the heroin and you inject it there. Uh, you can't take it out with you. And the results have been incredible. Burglary massively fell, street prostitution just ended. Um, uh, muggings and street robbery massively fell, disease transmission massively fell, Swiss people didn't vote for this because they're lovely and compassionate towards drug users. they really aren't an uncle when I said to him I was writing a book about uh, the drug war and drug addicts he said oh, I, don't, I don't know what we should do about drug addicts uh, we should make them dig their own graves and then shoot them into the graves is that what your book will say and I have to say oh, not quite uh, these, are, these are not this is like Utah voting to legalize heroin not San Francisco voting and crucially you cut out the dealers they're gone that okay. kind of mm. so
0: so and there's a great material on Swiss, Portugal, Mm. you have some other examples, Um, but we only have a couple of minutes left. So two things. Why has this been almost ignored by mainstream media in the United States, Um, these examples? Uh, You still have tons of reporting on drug busts and this and that. Like, the media itself still so buys into the underlying assumptions of the war on drugs but also why in jurisdictions, other European jurisdictions, or a place like even like Canada, other places, why
1: aren't other people adopting this? What's holding all this back? Oh, well, Canada has. And I tell the story of perhaps the most inspiring story in the book, I think, uh, for me anyway. It was a story of a man called Bud Osborne. I'll try to tell it quickly. Bud Osborne was a homeless street addict on the streets of the downtown east side of Vancouver, which had the worst concentration of addicts in North America. And he was watching his friends die all around him. People would use behind dumpsters so the police wouldn't see them. But, of course, if the police can't see you and you OD, no one can see you you die. And Bud thought, I've got to do something about this. But he also thought, I'm a homeless junkie. What can I do? And he had a really simple idea. Bud just said, why don't we arrange the addicts? And he got them together. And he said, when we're not using, because, of course, most people aren't using most of the time, let's just patrol the alleyways. And when we spot someone ODing, we'll call an ambulance. Really simple. They did it. And within a few months, the overdose rate started to really fall, which was great in itself. But the addicts started to think, it affected how the addicts thought of themselves. They thought, ah, oh, maybe we're not the pieces of shit everyone says we are. Maybe we're people who can save lives. They started to turn up at public meetings about the addict problem. And they'd sit at the back. And after a while, they'd put up their hand and go, I think you're talking about us. Is there anything we could do differently? And sometimes people were angry. Some people would say, well, you leave your needles lying around. And Bud was like, fine. We'll go and pick up the needles. That's OK. So they started doing that as well. Then Bud learned that in Frankfurt in Germany, they had opened legal injecting rooms where you could go and use your drugs, and it had massively brought down the overdose rate. And they said, right, we've got to have this. It never happened in North America since, since Anslinger began, we've got to have this. So they started stalking the mayor of Vancouver, a man called Philip Owen, who was a right-wing businessman, picture Mitt Romney basically, who said that addicts should be taken and detained in the local military base. And for two years, they follow Philip Owen everywhere he goes carrying a coffin. And it says something like, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room?" And they do this. And two years go by, they're a bit demoralized. And one day, totally to his credit, Philip Owen just says, Who the hell are these people? And he,
0: he gets, I know the story, and, he, and yeah. he gets one over to this. Well, he but goes they, but, and, yeah. but they don't do
1: heroin maintenance they do. So he goes and meets a load of addicts on the downtown east side. He opens the first safe injecting room in North America. Amazing. Uh, and, you know, it's been 10 years now, and the results are incredible. Overdose is down by 80%. Uh, they they started the first heroin maintenance program in North America, the Naomi program. Um, average life expectancy in Vancouver has improved. Uh, sorry, in the downtown east side has improved by ten years since they started that. That's crazy figures. I mean, you don't get figures like that except at the end of a war. Yeah, they do heroin maintenance, hmm. and you know it was really moving to me. Bud died last year, and um, you know he he was only in his early sixties, but he'd been a homeless addict during a drug war. It takes a toll on you, and when he died. They they sealed off the streets of the downtown east side where he had lived as a homeless person, and you know there were loads of people in the crowd for his memorial, and a lot of them knew that they were alive because of what he'd begun. And what I would say to any of your viewers who are watching this, and you think you know this is such a big issue, there's nothing we can do. You know we all feel powerless sometimes. I want to say to people, you are so much more powerful than you know. Bud was a homeless street addict. It's hard to think of a more disempowered person in our society. He started a revolution that saved thousands of people's lives. The Canadian Supreme Court has now ruled as a direct result of his activism that addicts have an inalienable right to life, and that includes a safe injecting space, right? They're never going to be able to take that back now. We can end this thing. The one thing you can say about the drug war in its defense is we gave it a fair shot, right? We've done this for a hundred years. The pe- alternatives are being tried all over the world. They work, you know? And we've just got to you talk about how the media doesn't cover this. How do these things ever change? People band together through activism, we demand a change, right? Homeless street addicts managed to do it in Vancouver. You know, I was just in New York, staying near the Stonewall Inn, you know, 1963 a bunch of drag queens gather there, 2000 years gay people have been treated as disgusting. The defenders of gay people in 1963 said they're sick, like that was the way of defending them was to say they're not evil, they're they're sick, right? That was the pro-gay position. Some of those people lived to see the introduction of gay marriage, something they didn't even ask for in 1963. It would have seemed like you and me saying we want to live on the moon and smoke crack there. You know, like it would have seemed crazy. Things get unimaginably better if people demand them. And I'm actually incredibly optimistic about this. The drug war is a disaster. Virtually no one defends it. The alternatives work incredibly well. I think we're going to live to see this change.
0: Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Johan Hari, Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. Thanks very much for joining us on Reality Asserts Itself on The Real News Network.